What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, uh, please do give us a call. We would love to get that question answered. You can move on with your life. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial uh, our country code, which is 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you are wanting to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there right now as you're probably looking at us. All you have to do is put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One. We'll hopefully get it answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price. Very glad to be back with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Well, I'm doing better. I, I'm doing better. This is our first live show together in the last two weeks. We've been out for a while, so I, so glad I've, to have you back. I have been ill. I, I hope uh, people will bear with me in my, my crackly voice here. We, we, we can bear. We can bear. I appreciate that. Here's uh, an email from Susan to lead us off. Dear Dr. Andrews, in Vatican II's teaching on ecumenism, quote, it is only through Christ's Catholic Church, which is the all-embracing means of salvation, that they, non-Catholics, can benefit fully from the means of salvation, end quote. So much of spiritual growth comes to Catholics through the sacraments. Please describe to what degree a baptized person can be, quote, saved without access to the sacraments of Eucharist and reconciliation. Thanks, Susan. Yeah, thank you, Susan. I appreciate the question. So, well, you've already mentioned one way, and that is baptism, Mm -hmm. right? So baptism properly belongs to the Catholic Church, and every baptism is, in a way, a kind of Catholic—is a Catholic sacrament. So all baptized people belong, if only in a remote way, to the Catholic faith right off the bat. So they're in the state of grace from baptism. Um, And the Church has always taught that you can be restored to the state of grace through an act of perfect contrition apart from the sacrament of reconciliation. So there's that possibility as well. Um, and uh, the, what the Church says about the offer of grace to non-Catholics is that God makes that offer of grace in a way known only to God. So we can speculate, we can speculate, uh, but ultimately God offers sufficient grace to everyone that they might be saved. Um, now, you know, I can look at other specific instances. I can think about, say, my Baptist grandfather, who was such a virtuous and wonderful person and had the love of Christ in his heart. Um, uh, he got a lot of mileage out of his love for the Bible. Well, where did he get the Bible from? He got it from the Catholic Church. Yeah. You know, I mean, so yeah. the, the, he had he had means of grace in his life that were of Catholic provenance, even though they'd been broken out of Catholic unity. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. And uh, thank you so much, Susan, for your question. Here's one now from Julie. Why do we have gluten-free hosts if the host is the body and blood of Christ. I'm asking because a friend goes to daily Mass 
who has a severe gluten allergy, but believed she was not receiving gluten in the host. Now she's been feeling bad and is just wondering what the truth is. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So it is bad theology to believe that the act of consecration changes the physical effects of the sacred host um, that appears to be bread, right? The, mm. the Catholic doctrine is that the accidents of bread and wine remain after the consecration. That is, all of the physical properties that you can perceive sensibly uh-huh. of bread and wine remain. And that would include their physiological effects upon the body. So, you know, nothing in Catholic doctrine says that you can't get drunk on consecrated wine. And, uh, and in fact, you can, which is mm, yeah. St. Paul condemns that specifically. In mm-hmm. the book of 1 Corinthians, he talks about people that went to Mass and got drunk on the blood of Christ. It, it still has the effect of alcohol on your body. Sure. Um, and and the, the mistake, I think, is that people, they confuse the real presence of Christ or the substantial presence of Christ with the idea of the physical presence of Christ. And I have heard Catholics wrongly say that in the Eucharist we have Jesus physically present. What the Church says is different. The Church says we have him substantially present. Substantial and physical are different categories. Physical is, you know, Tom Price is physically with me right now. I could reach out and touch him. You know, I, I, you know, if I were so inclined as a cannibal, I could chop him up and meet him. You know, that's physical presence. Jesus is with us substantially. We have the substance of Christ's body and blood, but none of the physical attributes of his body and blood, none of the properties of body and blood are present. Those are the properties of bread and wine that are present. They will affect our bodies as bread and wine do, right? And the substance of Christ's body and blood ceases the minute the, the elements cease to, uh, cease to have the appearance of bread and wine. So by the time they hit the digestive tract, they no longer look like bread and wine. The Church says the real presence is no longer there. Right, so that what's, what remains, what passes through the intestines and through the metabolism, is going to have the effects of bread and wine on your body. That's Catholic doctrine. So you shouldn't expect something other than what the Church teaches to happen in the consecration of the elements. Um, and so that's why that we uh, it is permissible to use low gluten hosts for people that have a problem with gluten because the effects of gluten are going to be the same in the body. If your friend is having an allergic reaction to even a low-gluten host, then she may have to commune from the chalice only. Sure. Okay, Julie, thanks so much for your question. And we'll uh, go to break with this one from Sydney. Why do Catholics believe that Mary is the Queen of Heaven? Um, yeah, thanks. So that's actually not a dogma. It's a devotional title of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but a, but a pretty old one and a highly regarded one. Um, it's uh, because that she is the mother of the king. So she would have the status in heaven that, say, Bathsheba had with reference to Solomon. Mm. And that's the comparison that's specifically made between Bathsheba and Solomon. Oh, very good. And uh, thank you so much for your question, Sydney. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, that mailbag is always ready for your email at et, uh, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We try to uh, answer a few of these emails on each of our live shows. And, uh, you know, coming up next week, we have Thanksgiving, and we have um, the day after Thanksgiving, we've got uh, mailbag programs both days. So if you've sent up something recently, uh, be sure to tune in on uh, Thanksgiving and the Friday. Maybe you'll hear your email then. In a moment, we'll get to the phones at 833-288-EWTN for today's Call to Communion. Stay with us. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN, our phone number, and we do have one line open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. New from EWTN Publishing, a great new book, Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by Bishop Robert Baker. He shares stories and reflections on sacred scripture, the saints, popes, other famous individuals that provide hope and inspiration for the Advent and Christmas seasons. These brief power-packed meditations include penetrating daily questions for your reflection and your action. And they also offer a prayer for each day while lighting the Advent or Christ candle. This is a great book from a a wonderful friend of the network, uh, Bishop Robert Baker, his brand new one, Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Mark in Jackson, Michigan, on the great Good Shepherd Radio. Hey, Mark. Uh, what's on your mind today, sir? I was wondering if, uh, with regard to Catholic teaching, a ceremony that is between two persons of the same sex, you know, which isn't really a wedding, is a sacrilege. I've had situations where family members uh, you know, invited our family to come to something like that, which we declined, and other situations where yeah, I, I've heard you know, through the grapevine, so I don't know for sure, that their pastor, the priest, said that uh, the most loving thing to do would be to go. And uh, I wouldn't want to participate in a sacrilege, and I wouldn't want to recommend someone to do that if that's what it really is. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So here's here's the fundamental problem with so-called gay marriage. Um, it, it radically misconstrues what marriage is. There is a reason why almost every civilization since the dawn of time has had something like what we consider to be marriage in in, uh, in the Catholic Church, namely the union of a man and a woman um, for the sake of raising a family. There's a reason why nearly every civilization on the planet has something like that, and it is the blindingly obvious reason that when men and women get together in intimate union, babies tend to happen— and a, a, a society is formed, a community is the result of that sexual union um, that is incredibly important for the maintenance of civilization because it's where new people come from. And the new people who come in to that union have intrinsic needs uh, and rights. Uh, they have rights to their parents, and they have needs for nurture and care that are best delivered by the people responsible for bringing them into the world. And so that, that intrinsic connection between marriage and fertility and replenishment of society uh, uh, and, and, the, and the, in, the inevitable social bonds that, that emerge and the need for things like rights of inheritance and kinship bonds and things of that sort mm-hmm. is why you find something like Catholic marriage in every civilization on the planet. What has happened in, uh, in the claim behind gay marriage is that proponents— implicitly are saying that marriage is a way for society to bless or hallow um, a union based on sexual affinity. That's an, that's, that means something entirely different. And it's totally arbitrary. I mean, you, 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 could, you could, with just as much justice, say, I would like to call two tennis partners husband and wife. 
or husband and husband or however it might be mm. because you know for them they have this great affinity for tennis why, why as a society why don't we create an institution to hallow and protect the coupling of tennis players well because tennis for, for all the good that tennis does in the world uh, it has nothing like the significance uh, for civilization or the human person that the male-female sexual union does. It, it doesn't replenish society. Um, and, you know, even though some of you Wimbledon fans might disagree with me, we could get on in the world without tennis. Wow. Right? We can't get on in the world without babies. No, we can't. Okay? And, um, and it's never been a requirement that I know of in almost any civilization on the planet that a husband and wife necessarily have to find one another sexually attractive. Now, that might be ideal. I mean, you might not be preferable, but it's not essential to the marital union as such. Hence the, 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 the prevalence of arranged and political marriages throughout Western history. Well, world history, not just Western history, mm, yeah, yeah. right? Um, you know, people want to make alliances. Um, uh, they want to make arrangements for, for family and kinship uh, and, and the propagation of the species and you know, we in the West tend today to think that it's nice if those goals coincide with romantic attraction, but they're really quite different from romantic attraction. And anybody that's been married, you know, for 30 plus years knows that, um, you know, romantic attraction is a thing that can that can wax and wane and wane and wane and wane, right, as you go on. And, and that's not ultimately the, the nature of the bond. Sure. Right. Um, and it's even more pernicious when when... A, tri a kind of moral equivalence is sought between gay marriage and, and, and heterosexual marriage uh, in, in, as it relates to the home as a place for the raising of children. Because you'll note that a gay couple, by definition, cannot be fertile. It's impossible. It's biologically impossible. So when that couple seeks to raise a child, um, you know, as a kind of simulacrum of marriage, of necessity, that child will be deprived of at least one of its biological parents. And the, and the right to that child is not something that would, that would flow from nature, but from a diktat by the state. So the, state the state ceding to that couple the right to raise a child that is not the child of at least one of those people. Right? Uh, do you see how that radically deforms our relationship to the state, to one another, and to our own children. Now, all of a sudden, the right to have a child is something granted by government fiat, not by natural law. So the whole thing is just entirely misconstrued, which is why um, there are homosexual persons who are not in favor of gay marriage. When uh, France, when the when the well, sorry to say the Kingdom of France, when when uh, when the nation of France underwent this transition in their own culture, they had a movement called Manif Poltus, that was a, a a popular movement to oppose this new change to allow gay marriage. Many of the participants in Manif Poltus were in fact homosexual, who who you know they perfectly fine with them being gay, but they're like this is this is not what marriage is. This is not what our union is. This is a misconstrual of the way these are, things uh, have historically been understood. It's not in the best interest of the nation. Um, it, it's only in the sort of deeply ideological construal of, construal of homosexual relations that we now have in the modern West that this thing is even conceivable, right? Um, uh, you know, in ancient Greece, 
in Athens, which was a very homoerotic culture. Read any of the dialogues of Plato. You can't make it 10 pages in Plato without coming across pederasty. It never occurred to the Greeks to call that thing marriage. Oh, they valued it. They liked it. They liked it better than marriage. I mean, they, they're, they were big on pederasty, but they never called it marriage because they recognized it was a fundamentally different kinds of institution. And so it's a, it is a, it's a strange, strange creature that's been, that's been thought up in, uh, in the modern Western world. Is it sacrilege? Well, uh, I've never heard uh, an official organ of the magisterium use that word to describe it, but I can see why you would make the case, given that marriage is understood to be not only a sacrament for Catholics, but sacred for people. So, yeah, I can see why you would make that claim. Mark, thanks so much uh, for your call. That opens up a line for you, and uh, just one line, because uh, very busy phones today at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Alex is a first-time caller from Orange County, listening on YouTube today. Hey, Alex, what's on your mind today? Hi there. Uh, I'm just struggling with some of the language that I hear the Church uses, specifically in the CCC, um, 2679, I think it is. It uh, uses the words pray to Mary, um, and I know that we Catholics define praying too differently depending on who's receiving the prayers, but I'm wondering why the Church doesn't just use different words right off the bat to limit the confusion, because um, I'm sure a lot of non-Catholics, even myself as a Catholic, uh, will see and hear the words pray to saints and pray to Mary, but it's not the same as praying to God and praying to Jesus. So I wonder why the Church never just, you know, used different verbiage to clear up the confusion out there. Um, cause um. Yeah, sure, because, well, first of all, praying to is an entirely appropriate use of language, right? The The difficulty comes in not with—it's not that praying to is confusing. It's that some non-Catholics believe that to ask things of an invisible agent other than God uh, is, uh, is, is to commit idolatry. And that's false. That, that objection is false. It is not true that asking people for things constitutes idolatry. But the but the actual language of of request of uh, of uh, of um, uh, of, uh, of intercession of prayer there's nothing inappropriate about that right um, what we need to clear up is not the language about praying but the language about worship hmm. see the Protestant objection is you Catholics when you pray to Mary you are in fact worshiping her well no that's not what prayer means and that's not what worship means you know if I go to the court and my lawyer says well I pray the court to grant us relief that's not an act of worship. Now, what if my lawyer went to the court and said, uh, Your Honor, I pray that you grant us relief, and I have brought a garlanded bull that I am going to slaughter and offer in sacrifice to your majesty, and then we will all enjoy a Bacchanalian feast, and, and we will await your, your divine munificence to rain down upon us in grace and grant us relief, right? And here, have this garlanded bull that we're going to sacrifice wow. to you. That would be worship. Yeah. That would be worship, right? And, and, and that's, that's the confusion, see, is that Protestants have forgotten what worship is because they got rid of the sacrifice of the Mass. When they attempted to eliminate sacrifice from Christian worship, the only thing they had left was prayer. And so they just assumed that prayer must mean worship. Hmm. It's not what, that's not what worship is. If you look at the Catholic system of worship, you'll find that we know what worship is. Worshiping is the offering of sacrifice, and we don't offer sacrifices to the Blessed Virgin Mary. We're not carting out garlanded bulls and offering them to Mary. We don't do that, right? We do offer sacrifice to God alone, and that's the sacrifice of the Mass and the sacrifice of ourselves.
Okay. Alex, thanks so much for your call. Ashley, a first-time caller in Westerville, Ohio, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio, the blowtorch. Hey there, uh, Ashley, what's on your mind today? Yeah. Um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I I have an uncle who's asked this question many times, um, and my mom um, and I kind of struggle to answer it, so I'm hoping you can help. Um, so he's a Catholic, and he definitely believes in purgatory, but he has a hard time understanding the full concept of purgatory in the aspect of if he's wondering why we need to have purification and purgatory, you know, to become perfect to enter into heaven. If Jesus died on the cross for us, why is that necessary? Yes, what a great question. I really appreciate it. So your uncle's objection presumes a Protestant understanding of the cross, not a Catholic understanding of the cross. So his, his difficulty is not just with purgatory. He doesn't understand the doctrine of atonement, namely what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because, see, here's how Protestants, or at least some Protestants, view the atonement. Uh, in Calvin's theology, he thought that God was angry with us and that in his wrath he needed to expiate his wrath upon his subject. You know, he needed to get it out of his system, as it were. And that he didn't want to punish us, but he was compelled by his wrathful nature to punish someone. And so Jesus stands in the breach and takes the blow, as it were, so that we don't have to. And so the function of the atonement in Protestant theology is that Christ bears punishment vicariously. He's punished on our behalf. Now, if that's the purpose of the crucifixion, which is what Protestants think, then sure, what's the point of purgatory if Christ has already borne the full temporal consequences or eternal consequences of sin in his own body, is God's wrath not satisfied? That's not what the atonement of Christ does. That's not what the death of Christ accomplishes. Uh, that view of the atonement is, is horrific because it imagines that God punishes innocent people so that he can acquit guilty people, or rather he punishes the innocent person Christ so he can acquit us. And that would be grossly unjust. Imagine if, uh, if you had to go to court and, you know, um, and uh, you, you went there with a friend of yours who was accused of murder, and the and the judge says, well, I, you know, I'm, the friend's guilty, but you know what? I've I've decided that I'm going to send Ashley to jail instead of the friend, and the friend can go off scot free. You'd be like, whoa, oh, your honor, well, that's totally unfair, right? That's the Protestant view of the atonement. Here's what Catholics think happens on the cross: number of things, but most importantly, God's not angry at Jesus; He's not punishing Jesus. Humans are punishing Jesus for something that Jesus didn't do. Their action is unjust. But Jesus' willing self-offering, his handing himself over to the mistreatment by unjust men, uh, that's what we call martyrdom. Mm. That's what you call a martyr. And, and, and rather than hating martyrs and seeking their punishment, we value them. We valorize them. And we say they're worthy of honors. And that's how God regards it. God regards the self-sacrifice of Christ as meritorious. And so he rewards Jesus by pouring out grace upon the church, his body, the gift of the Holy Spirit, then the purpose of that grace is to bring us to holiness. When we, through faith, receive the grace of Christ that he won for us on the cross, it begins within us the process of sanctification and redemption, this transformation of our person into the likeness and image of Jesus, which is a progressive thing. And so, yes, he died on the cross for our sins to win for us the grace of redemption, but it still must be applied to me. 
I must interiorize that grace and allow it to do its work in me, the work of which is to purify me of sin. All right. Ashley, thank you so much for your question today. Checking in from uh, Westerville, Ohio. Busy phones, I must tell you. We're going to try to get to everybody today. Uh, Lewis in Frankfort, Kentucky. Sandy driving through Alabama. Frank in Central Texas. Anthony in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Pat in Lakewood, New Jersey. Hey, pray for us. We can get everybody in here on this uh, Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Hey, glad you're with us for the Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. We do have one line open. Uh, You better snag it now because uh, phones are on fire today. 833-288-EWTN. Here now, Lewis in Frankfort, Kentucky, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Lewis, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Yeah, the caller, a couple of callers before that was asking about the uh, gluten-free or gluten low yep yep mm-hmm. saying that uh, this is in the presence of Jesus uh, but then explain to me in John chapter 6 where Jesus says unless you eat my body or drink my blood you have no part of me yeah yeah exactly so I'm not sure I understand your question I mean that the church's doctrine is that when the priest consecrates the Eucharist that the substance of bread and wine are are transformed transubstantiated into the substance of Christ's body and blood. And so in the Eucharist, we have the real presence of Christ's body and blood, the true substance of Christ's body and blood. But the mode of his presence is different from the everyday mode of presence that we know as as physical presence, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, like I'm staring at my colleague Tom Price, and, you know, there's about, I don't know, about six feet of him, and, you know, probably I'm just eyeballing it, 170 pounds, you know, give or take a pound here the other, on the other direction. You know, he's got a, you know, I don't know, I don't know, he's, you know, got a certain coat dimension. He has, you know, probably, you know, 37 waist, something like that. I'm just eyeballing it here, John. I don't really know what your proportions are. And, um, and uh, none of that is present in the Eucharist. You know, I, I'm not getting 170 pounds of Jesus. I'm not getting, uh, you know, six foot tall Jesus. Um, I'm not getting olive skin, Jesus. All those are what we call accidents. They're properties of the physical body. None of them are present in the Eucharist, which clearly Mm. looks like bread and looks like wine, Uh even though substantially it's Christ's body and blood. So we're talking about a very mysterious mode of presence here. Very mysterious mode of presence. Uh, It's real presence. It's the substance of his Christ's body and blood, but it's the substance devoid of any particularizing property that would normally be present in physical presence. Is that helpful for you, Lewis? Not really. Uh, I'm still confused. I mean, if this is the, the body and blood of Christ, wouldn't it have maybe not his whole body, but wouldn't it have the presence in the same DNA, the same... Uh, yeah, yeah thank D- you. So, so what? it boils down to what we mean by the word substance. Okay? It means what, what we mean substance. Uh, and in, and in, in classical philosophy... Substance is the th- the thing that makes uh, an entity to be the kind of thing that it is, right? And you know, to take a trivial example, you know, you could have a three-legged dog, and it, it would lack some of the properties of a normal dog, but its dogginess would still be discernible, all right? Take the dog and start abstracting away qualities. What if you t- what if you had a dog that was colorless? 
Ooh, a clear dog. A colorless dog. Wow. Could you still discern dogginess? What about a, a quad amputee colorless dog? Right. And you just you just keep going that way. You just keep abstracting away properties. Yeah. Until you were until the only thing that's left is the mere abstraction dogginess. Now now from a scientific point of view, I don't know where that lies. Like I don't know at what point how many properties could I abstract away and still have dogginess? That's a that's a speculative question, mm -hmm. right? But that's the that's the that's the mental operation that we're performing. We're abstracting away particularizing qualities until all that's left is the substance of Christ's body and blood, right? His yeah. uh, his substantiality yes. without any particularizing element. Now, like I said, like to actually try to conceptualize that is quite difficult. But that's what the church says happens in transubstantiation. Christ is really and truly there substantially, right? But not but not in the normal mode of presence. Okay. Lewis, thanks so much uh, for your call. I'm still working on that clear dog. That's uh, quite a concept, David. <laughs> you've, you've done it again for me. Called to communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. Anthony is a first-time caller in Port St. Lucie, Florida, also listening today on Sirius XM Channel 130. Anthony, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, Dr. Anders, and uh, great to have you back, Tom. Thank um, you. Thank you. So, my question, I want to preface it real quick, that I have the utmost respect for the Pope. I know he's often misquoted. Um, I'm just having a difficult time understanding, because and I have great respect for all the different liturgies in the Church, um, and my family has found beauty in the Latin Mass, and I, I just don't understand why, through Traditionis Custodis and, and etc., it seems that he's targeting or trying to restrict it. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So... I have friends that regularly attend the traditional Latin Mass, and they can be grouped into two categories. Um, one are people like yourself who find great beauty and edification in the traditional Mass, and so there's a kind of devotional preference. Um, they value sacred tradition. They, they appreciate the sense of rootedness in the Church's history, all that that's conveyed by the traditional Latin Mass, which is edifying and delightful, and I think it's one of the reasons—these are some of the reasons why Pope Benedict um, uh, uh, authorized the widespread use of the Mass. I know other people who have told me explicitly um, that they go to the Latin Mass as an act of rebellion against the Pope. I mean, I've been told that specifically— Right by practicing Catholics that I know that it's for them it's a kind of badge of their rejection of the Holy Pontiff and of his pastoral program for the Church. That's reactionary and and dissenting and 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 borderline schismatic, right? That attitude. So the same it's the same mass, but it means something very different to two different groups of people. And if you read the accompanying letter to uh, to the the, the motu proprio or the papal bull that 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 Francis promulgated uh, traditionis custodis, he describes extremely clearly his understanding of that second group, and he says there are there are those for whom adherence to the mass has become a point of distinction, whereby they seek to be uh, alienated from the Holy Father and from the universal church. And and that that reactionary ideological attitude is flat contrary to Catholic unity 
and to the obedience that we owe to the Pope. And for that reason, uh, he determined to put restrictions on the Latin Mass. And look, I, we get a lot of callers to the show who say, well, that's not me. Uh, that's not why I'm interested in the Mass. And I'm like, well, good for you. Like, you're not that kind of person. He's, you're not the one he's targeting. He's told us why. He's told us why. And, and they're, 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 they're a minority, but they're a very vocal minority. And I also think it's important to keep in mind that uh, America is not always first and foremost in the Pope's mind. And that might be hard for Americans to swallow sometimes because it's first and foremost in our mind. Right? <laughs> but the, uh, the traditionalist movement, and I distinguish traditionalism from tradition— Right, traditionalism is an ideology. Tradition is a is a is a is a reservoir of treasures from Catholic history. Right, I have a great appreciation for tradition. Doesn't make me a traditionalist. Okay, traditionalism um, in some parts of the world is a is a much bigger problem uh, to Catholic unity and obedience to the local ordinary than it is in the United States. And it's a problem some places here, but in there are other other parts of the world where it's a big, big, big problem. Mm. And uh, and and Pope Francis sees that, and he's trying to bring people together, back together into a common celebration of the liturgy. Anthony, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Frank is a first-time caller from Central Texas, listening on his Alexa device. Hey, Frank, what's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to to get some clarification on which is a proper Bible to uh, for a Catholic to read. Uh, I know there's different versions out there. Yeah, thanks. Personally, I like the NRSV Catholic edition. That's my go-to translation. Um, the one that we use in liturgy is the New American Bible. Um, honestly, if I'm if I'm doing serious Bible study, I don't limit myself to just one translation. I, mm. I'll, I'll consult several. And, um, and there are wonderful resources online today where even if you don't know Hebrew and Greek, you can avail yourself of a lot of, a lot of resources to, to get at the underlying original languages and, and have some grammatical tools to make sense of them. Good luck with that, uh, Frank. Thank you so much for your call. Pat is in Lakewood, New Jersey, listening on the great Domestic Church Media. Hello, Pat. What's on your mind today? Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I just have a follow-up question to the person that called in about the gay marriages. I'd like to know why the Pope is giving the okay and the blessing for gay marriages. He's not. I heard that they said he was. No, you heard wrong. You heard, you absolutely heard wrong. I I know that you heard this because I've, I mean, I, I watch the news like you do, and I, and I see the way popular media and some very reactionary, ideologically driven Catholic sites want to construe the Pope's words to make him say things that he did not say. Um, but uh, I'm going to read to you um, what the Pope actually said on this question. Um, the Church has—this is the Pope writing now, in his very voice. The Church has a very clear conception of marriage, an exclusive, stable, and indissoluble union between a man and a woman naturally open to the begetting of children. Only this union is called marriage. It's not a mere question of names, but the reality that we call marriage has a unique essential constitution that demands an exclusive name not applicable to other realities. For this reason, the Church avoids any kind of rite or sacramental that could contradict this conviction and give the impression that something that is not marriage is recognized as marriage. 
That's all Pope Francis. Yeah. I don't think you can get any clearer than that. No. Pope's not allowing gay marriage. Period. End of paragraph. And one thing I would add to that that I uh, tend to do quite often around here is to remind people, stick with the media that you know and trust. I can recommend Catholic News Agency. I can recommend National Catholic Register, EWTN, Catholic Answers. You know the list. You know the list. Yeah. Pat, thanks so much uh, for your call. Be sure to join us for Holy Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel right here on the EWTN campus. We bring it to you every day, not just weekdays, every day at 8 a.m. Eastern on EWTN radio and television. Sandy is listening, uh, driving through Alabama today on Sirius XM Channel 130. Sandy, what's on your mind today? Well, I'm soon to be home, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was... I was curious, uh, a long time ago, one of the archbishops in Mobile had presented me with a papal rosary from St. John Paul. And I listened to y'all a lot, and I was curious to see maybe if this might be a relic. I don't know if it was actually touched. I'm assuming it probably was, because my dear friend, Archbishop Lipscomb, was a very close friend of St. John Paul, but I, you know, that's about all I know. So I'm just curious. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks. So uh, if, if you had a rosary that was used by, uh, that was held by the by the, the Pope, uh, we could call that a third-class relic. Objects that have been, well, I take that back. Uh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, objects that have been touched to a first or second-class relic or or by the saint himself are third-class relics. So that sounds like what we're talking about. A second-class relic is something that he owned. Um, and first class relic would be uh, a, a part of his body, part of his physical body. Okay. Appreciate that. And uh, Sandy, drive carefully out there. It's uh, called a communion here on EWTN. Bert sent us a, a, a question via YouTube. Bert says, I honestly want to know more about Catholicism. Where do I go? I recently started learning Latin, and it has led down a rabbit hole with a Catholic friend on learning about the Roman Church. My question is, what does a typical Catholic's day look like? Yeah, thanks. So first of all, in terms of learning more about the Catholic Church, have at it, my friend. I mean, the resources are nearly endless. Yeah. You, you've come to a good place. EWTN is a great place to get started. All the programming and our document library and religious catalog are great sources of information about Catholicism. If you want to branch beyond the network, uh, you know, you, I would always recommend to you the Catechism of the Catholic Church, yep. which is the kind of official position on Catholic teaching. Um, if you're learning Latin, then maybe you're in a place to, to start exploring the Church Fathers, the writings of uh, the great Catholic uh, bishops and theologians from the first uh, several centuries, and none of them is a better place to start than Augustine of Hippo. If you've never read Augustine's Confessions, it's the, the first autobiography in the history of the world, or at least the, the Western world, and a literary masterpiece. And, and also very accessible, too. Very accessible, and a, and a beautiful account of what Catholic faith is all about. Um, so, I mean, there are really infinite uh, resources here for you. Um, in terms of what does a typical Catholic's day look like, um, you know, there are something like a billion Catholics on the planet, and so it's kind of hard to, to specify a typical day. I can, I can tell you some of the practices that are understood normatively or ideally to be part of the Catholic's day. Um, if you are a priest or a religious, that is to say a monk or a nun, then uh, one of the things that you will do every day is you will go to Mass, and you will also pray the Liturgy of the Hours, which is a, 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 a series of prayers that change according to the day, um, based largely on the Psalms and, and other scriptures, but especially the Psalms, 
that's prayed seven times a day. And so there's a very consistent practice of, uh, of private prayer and corporate prayer based on what's called the Liturgy of the Hours. Um, uh, uh, a, a, a lay Catholic is certainly encouraged to attend Mass daily. They're not required to. Many do. Um, and they may or may not pray the Liturgy of the Hours with the clerics, uh, but they're encouraged to pray daily and to pray without ceasing, especially the Lord's Prayer um, and, uh, and uh, a thousand and one different popular Catholic devotions to our Lord and to the saints to keep the uh, 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 holy things always in our mind. Um, reading Scripture is part of a Catholic's day, or should be. And uh, ultimately, meditation on uh, on the life of heaven and and the, the rewards of the just and the teaching of Jesus and and his life and his, and his example. And if you did nothing else in your life other than just hold the person of Christ before your mind and and seek by your actions to live in obedience to his commands, you would not be going wrong. Bert, what a great question, and we'll be praying for you, my friend. Thanks for your question via YouTube today. All right, let's go to Tony now in Ponchatoula, Louisiana, listening on his Alexa device. Tony, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, Dr. Anders, uh, just a question. Uh, both my daughters grew up in Catholic, all the sacraments, uh, in their 20s, got married. Well, one got married, one's got a boyfriend. They have fallen away from the church and now attend mega churches. And we get into little conversations about baptism and saints and uh I've went to one of their churches. There's no Bibles. They don't pray to our Father. They don't there's nothing nothing to do with God in there except for maybe a homily and a Bible verse. How do I get them to slowly come to realization that that's not a church, the main church is the Catholic Church, and to slowly try to get them back in, even though it's the husband and the boyfriend who is changing their thoughts? Yeah, thank you. So there's more than one way I can answer this question. I can give you arguments that are intellectually compelling. Will they move your daughters? That's a different question. And typically when people leave the Catholic Church for these megachurches, they are not drawn away from the Catholic Church by argument. It's not that they've become intellectually persuaded of the truth of their megachurch. It's that they have been drawn in by uh, relationships and emotional experience. And megachurches are designed to be very consumer-friendly. They spend literally millions of dollars on entertainment, on their sound system, on their lights, and uh, and they, they craft very accessible and and uh, 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 rhetorically compelling messages uh, that are meant to tickle the ears and and to excite the imagination and the affections. And uh, if you're drawn into that, it's uh, it can be intoxicating for a while. And of course, you're you're not interested in arguments about why this experience that you're having that you find so enjoyable is wrong. So let's let's look at it from both points of view. I mean, from a from an intellectual point of view, from a doctrinal point of view, um, you know, the the biggest problem with all forms of Protestantism, in my judgment, including the megachurch, is that the whole system is based on the idea that God gave us the Bible as our rule of faith, and that's true of most Protestant megachurches as well. But of course, there's absolutely no evidence for that claim. It's just mm. an assertion, yeah. right? I mean, Christ gave instructions for handing on the Christian faith had nothing to do with, with adhering to the Bible alone. He, in fact, established um, ap- uh, apostles 
with the command to teach everything he had taught them and to go on to all nations, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that he'd be with them to the end of the age. He, he authorized the magisterium, the apostles and their successors, the bishops, as the authoritative transmitters of the Christian faith. That's what Jesus said. Uh, whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. That's what Jesus said. Um, so their whole system is based on fabrication. It's based on the Luther's febrile imagination and not on what Jesus actually taught. Their interpretation of the Bible, of course, is, is equally problematic. Um, if you, just, just the words of Christ are so heavily oriented towards the transformation of our ethical life. And uh, most of these kinds of churches uh, have a different doctrine, where it's not oriented towards uh, the life of virtue and charity, but but uh, but of religious experience and positive affect, and you know, feeling like I'm a child of God, and any kind of you know emotional description of Christian experience, but not not this transformation of the ethical life. So there's just reasons upon reasons to reject their doctrinal system. Um, but like I said, that's probably not why they left. Um, and the, I think the best thing you can do is to stay in relationship with them, to be very open. Love them. And to, exactly. And to manifest the truth of Catholicism that is charity, right? So that you, you be that constant, loving, affirming presence in their life that they know they can always turn to in times of trouble. And I promise you, over time, the allure of the megachurch will wane because they will be fair-weather friends. Tony, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. Chris, listening in Maryland on the great Guadalupe radio. Chris, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, okay. Well, just a quick comment. A lot of entertainment and alternative uh, cults of personality with a lot of the mega churches. But, Mike, I want to pose a question that uh, in the Nephilim were created by the fallen angels uh, cohabiting with the uh, the early uh, humans, you know, and uh, well, my question revolves around throughout the Bible, you had people who were barren, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, uh, I can think Samuel's mother, uh, I'm trying to think of Samson, and uh, let me roll up the window, Samson, and then John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth, and uh, John, uh, I forgot his name, and but okay, so. You have these, you know, the evil spirits creating offspring, and then the Holy Spirit coming, and, and the same with Jesus, the Holy Spirit. So it, it seems like these Satan and the angels has, might have had some foreknowledge in the sense of um, the Holy Spirit, or the, you know. I'm with you. I follow you. I follow you. So uh, Catholic doctrine rejects the idea that demonic spirits impregnated women. And the, when the, the Church Fathers offer explanations for the phenomenon of the Nephilim, they all reject the thesis that you suggested, namely that these are, that these are infernal spirits who, who copulate with, with human women. All right? That's not the position of the Church Fathers. <clears throat> I think there are other ways to handle the story as well, but in any case... Uh, demons are spirits, and they, they lack the ability to have sexual relations with women. So how, however you understand the story of the Nephilim, and I think there's more than one way to understand it, uh, we don't take that as a literal truth, right, the way you've construed that. And so I think that kind of the premise of your question, I think, is false. Um, as to whether or not uh, the fallen angels had some intimation of the truth of the Incarnation, um, I doubt it, uh, because... Uh, Peter tells us in his epistles that that angels 
longed to look into the events that the prophets had foretold, but which they themselves did not understand, right? So that the, the, the events of the Incarnation and the establishment of the Christian Church were mysteries that God kept hidden until the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies in Jesus and his establishment of the Church. So if they were hidden from the angels and the prophets, they would have been hidden from the demons as well. Okay. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for your call. Tyler watching us on YouTube this afternoon. If Mary is free from original sin, why then in Luke 1, 47, she says she rejoices in God her Savior? Also, just a fun question, are there any saints from the Old Testament? All right, let me give you an analogy. Imagine a child um, that uh, doctors discerned in utero that this child had a genetic defect that had a high likelihood of developing into a congenital disease that would that would cause the child his life and a physi- and there's a medical intervention there's a genetic intervention that you can make that will prevent the disease from manifesting and so the doctor goes in in, in utero yeah. prenatally and he he does whatever the procedure is and prevents that deadly disease from manifesting so the child never experienced illness would you say, well, that doctor didn't do anything for me? <laughs> He's not my healer. He's not my savior. Right. What if, this of course is impossible, but what if the doctor had perfect foreknowledge and intervened at the exact moment of conception? That's kind of a horrible thought, right? But, but imagine, just for the sake of argument. Yeah, yeah. Right? Still, the same thing would hold, that that child would never suffer the effects of that genetic disorder. And yet it would be due to the intervention of that physician. That's something like the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, that God intervened miraculously at the moment of conception to give Mary an infusion of grace without which she would not have been saved. Well, there you go. Hey, Chris, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm hoping to make it through the end of the show here. Almost there. Chris, thanks so much uh, for your call today. We could not get to David P., who sent us a great question on YouTube. Uh, Charles is going to snag that question for us, and we'll lead off uh, with tomorrow's program. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast, 11 p.m. Eastern for the Encore, and that's 8 o'clock on the West Coast. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price. Glad to be back with Dr. David Anders and all of you right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day. God bless.